millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You, yes you, listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I have Mr. Chris Sams with me today. Hello, Chris. Hi, mate. How are you doing? There's a, there'd only be one reason why you'd be hanging around, isn't there? Boats yeah. or chicken. Probably boats. <laughs> boats or fried chicken. Yeah, tell us. Tell us why it is boats, not fried chicken. Tell us who's here and why you're excited. Um, okay, so today we've got uh, Graham Thomas, who is a naval mari- and maritime historian who specialises in the Royal Navy in the 18th century, um, especially to do with pirate hunting and piracy. And he has a new book out called uh, The Pirate Killers, which looks really good. It does indeed. Actually, you stole it from me yesterday. You ran away with my copy um, because you wanted it that much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's waving it around now. It's in my backpack when I left my house and when I got home late last night. It was not. Uh, so welcome, Graham. Thank you. This is really good because your book is kind of focused on Barbary pirates and the African coasts, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Yes. That should be really good. So it, no, one thing Chris jumped on straight away when he was reading this yesterday is that in the 17th century, you mentioned that the Barbary states are sailing further and further afield and come up as far as the Channel and conduct slaving raids. They're making off with white Europeans, aren't they? Yes, they would land um, parties on the coast of Cornwall and basically go into a village, grab people, take them out and get back to their, their boats uh, before anybody could do anything about it. So wow. in general, how much of a real menace are the Barbary pirates to British and European shipping? They were... I would say the best way to look at it would be the way that the pirates are now for um, shipping um, around Somalia and that kind of thing. It's about, it's that kind of a menace. Like as we have today, we've got the shipping, uh, all the shipping uh, going through the, uh, the Mediterranean and the Indian ocean um, and the Somali pirates that have been operating uh, there that have been a real uh, that have basically forced the Europeans to send warships 
into those areas in order to protect the tankers. It's the same kind of thing, probably not on as big a scale, because you've got to understand these raids were, it wasn't, it wasn't every day. It would have been months, um, maybe years between them. Um, so it, because they, they didn't have the technology, they were having to cover massive distances. And the only thing they had was sail power. Uh, so it would, it would be months um, before they would be able to conduct another raid. Um, so for the people at the time, it was a problem for sure. So more of a nuisance rather than, a, um, on the, rather than on the same scale as like the Viking threat, which I know is a bit of an odd parallel, but it's just something that happens every so often and just annoys them yeah. and they're not to do a proper sweep and clear of them. They were, I would say, terrorists. That's the best way to look at it. Mm. Uh, so it was it was brutal when it happened, um, but they weren't, as you say, they weren't a threat of invasion. Uh, they were basically uh, just trying to grab people. All they cared about was cash, trading, making money, um, and grabbing whatever they could. Um, so. But they were basically terrorists, and I would I think that's probably the best way to look at it. Later on, you uh, in in your book you talk about um, Madagascar as a base of base for pirates like um, Avery, Chew, and Bullridge. Um, why did it make such an ideal base for pirates operating off the east coast of Africa? Uh, the first thing you you need to understand is that uh, there was already a settlement in Madagascar. Um, there was a British. Um, a trading post there. Uh, there were actually several trading posts there. So there was already a settlement and most of the pirates knew about the convoys from uh, the Indian Ocean into by the Arabian um, states up to Mecca, which happened every year and it was taking all these riches. So it was, a, it was just about anybody who was a pirate, even in England, um, and Europe would know, and also in the Americas, because the Americas, a lot of American merchants uh, actually financed um, some of the Madagascar pirates. So um, loads and loads of people, most people that were involved in commerce knew about the trade routes. So uh, a lot of pirates, it was as it got, as the, the Royal Navy was expanding outwards, and attacking pirates in, um, in America and all around um, the Caribbean. It was getting hotter and hotter for pirates to operate in that area because the Royal Navy was pushing in, the French were in there, the Spanish were in there, all trying to get um, attack pirates. Africa and, the, um, and Madagascar in particular became a very, very, interesting place. It was perfect, uh, perfect, perfectly located to attack shipping in the Indian Ocean. It was perfectly located to go after for pirates to quickly uh, uh, intercept the Arabian convoys and um, grab their gold and all their stuff that they, um, that they were carrying, all the riches and the wealth and gold and silver and uh, the silks and the linens and all of that sort of stuff that they wanted. And they would grab them, and sometimes they would even take their ships completely. 
Um, so that was why Madagascar was a big, uh, a big, shall we say, a, a big place. And it just, it just grew and grew. Um, it's, I suppose it's remote enough that it's not going to draw attention. And as you said, the, with the, the uh, official navies on the other side of the Atlantic looking for them, it's remote enough but close enough to still attack sea lanes quite effectively and still get what you need for um, raiding, like uh, food supplies and ammunition. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And it only, I mean, it only changed because it affected the uh, European trade routes. So when the Europeans were affected and couldn't get, um, were unable to get the Arabian materials that they wanted, uh, that's when the French and the Royal Navy uh, were sent to uh, deal with it. This is hilarious because this is typically European, isn't it? When it becomes an issue for them, I mean, the Royal Navy are not going to stand for these pirates even sailing up to Cornwall and, and enslaving people. But it's a big mission, isn't it? There's many, many miles of open ocean. So how does the Royal Navy address this and other issues to solve the problem of the Barbary pirates? They essentially use privateers. Okay. So uh, a lot of the privateers would be commissioned out of... Um, places like Bristol, um, Cornwall, and those areas. Uh, and most of them were ex-pirates uh, who um, would have been, for whatever reason, decided to turn good. Maybe they hadn't been that successful as pirates, uh, but they would get a commission from uh, the uh, English crown. They'd have letters of mark. Uh, which gave them the uh, uh, gave them the authority to do it, and then they would go and get and attack the pirates. And quite often, even as they were privateers, quite often they would take the pirate booty for themselves, and they would destroy them uh, the uh, the pirates uh, that they were hunting. Sometimes they would turn back to pirates, but it was a combination of privateers and the Royal Navy itself. I suppose it, it means you don't have to, um, obviously through the 18th century with Britain being involved in several wars, it meant that you didn't have to take your warships off the line to go and deal with the pirates if you could pay um, poachers turned gamekeepers to go and deal, for, deal with it for you. Mm -hmm. now, Captain Kidd is a perfect example. He was, um, he was not a pirate. He was a privateer. And he attacked ships and got booty, et cetera, et cetera. Even though he was put on trial as a pirate, he wasn't. He was a privateer. He had letters of mark from, uh, from the crown. So, and there was a lot of people like him, uh, a lot of, uh, you have to understand, a lot of the privateers were already merchants. So, you know, in those days, there were no cars, there were none of the technology that we have. The big technology was um, were ships. So everything, all the commerce was done via sea. Uh, so all the stuff that's coming into, all the merchandise coming into Britain, it's all coming in by sea. Um, and so just about everybody and his brother was, uh, had, who was a merchant would have had a fleet of ships, small ships, but they would have been, you know, they could have fitted them out if they became privateers, they would have fitted them out with guns and stuff like that. And, and that they would do that. So they were, 
you know, their ships were around in their hundreds, if not thousands. Talks about people that went looking for them. Let's talk a bit about some of the pirates as well. One that springs to mind as being particularly famous is Black Bart. So Bartholomew Roberts. Can you tell us a bit about him? Um, well, he was an Englishman. He he became pi- a pirate quite uh, quite early on in his career. I think he was a sh- I think he was originally on the same ship as Avery was. So what kind of activity did he take part in? How problematic are these men? Oh, his, he sank, um, he attacked or sank or captured something in the neighborhood of 400 ships. Wow. Most of them were merchant ships. He, was, he attacked slave ships and he, he, would, uh, he would generally kill the crew or he would uh, enslave the crew. He would... Um, he would bring the slaves onto his ships to get them to work as crew because he had a fleet of ships. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just one ship. He actually had a fleet of ships that was under his command at the point, at the highest, highest point of his career. He had a, a, a small fleet of ships and he would change ships. So he would attack, he, his fleet would attack, say, a large, large merchant ship that might have 70 guns. Uh, whereas his ships might have like 40 guns and he would attack, attack those ships, take the, the big ship for himself and hand out all the goods and everything to the rest of the, the ships in his fleet. So he was, unto, he was almost like a Navy unto himself. So it, for him, he in particular was a menace. A major, major menace. Um, they sort of pirates like Black Bart and Captain Kidd sort of because, take on this sort of mantle of almost infamous celebrity. Um, when they do finally get caught, and they usually do, and they end up um, being executed or killed in battle, uh, what kind of impact does that have on um, overall merchant trade and for the Royal Navy? Does it make their life easier? Well, one of the things all- it does, one of the things it did for um, the Royal Navy was to give it the gravitas that um, many other navies did not have because the Royal Navy took down uh, Black Bart and took down um, Blackbeard as well. Um, both of those, uh, they were probably around the time the top two most infamous pirates. Um, and they, the Royal Navy took those guys down. So th- it gave them a huge amount of gravitas. And probably led to uh, the Royal Navy having a greater degree of control of the seas because everybody, all the pirates would say, well, we don't want to tangle with the Royal Navy um, because they've taken out our ta- some of our most notorious pirates. Um, so it, it, it did that for the... Uh, for the Royal Navy. And I think in terms of what it did for trade, Black Bart was, uh, he was getting rid of him, killing him in battle, defeating him in battle, and then defeating um, the rest of his fleet in battle. And of course, they all pretty much dispersed. So the trade for the trade, that was a really good thing because it gave greater confidence in the trade, the fact that the sea routes um, were now relatively free, uh, obviously until the next pirate came along. But 
after Black Bart died, there wasn't really anybody of any um, like him that came along uh, to to challenge the sea routes or, or to challenge the Royal Navy. How do they take him down? Oh, in battle. Mm. There's a there's a it's the HMS Swallow, I believe it is, is the one that ultimately defeats him, and they do it with more than one ship. I think it's two or three ships they use um, that take him down and blast him. Um, they don't pretty much blast him out of the water, but they do. He does. He does die on in in the major sea battle. M- moving on from um, talk about hubs of piracy, Algiers uh, appears um, started to become a real problem in the Mediterranean. Uh, to the point that the, the British and the Dutch uh, had were resolved to go and stamp it out and clean, clean, clean out all the pirates. Um, had all the sort of piracy and um, trade interdiction been a major distraction for them during the Napoleonic Wars? Uh, yeah, because the... It, it, yeah. It, it, the problem that they had was the piracy taking place coming out of Algiers during the Napoleonic Wars was, was forcing the Royal Navy to divert ships from the front line, to divert ships away uh, into Algiers. And because Algiers uh, was on the side of Napoleon, to some degree would support Napoleon, and certainly not England uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, the Royal Navy had to deal with them, as, as did the Dutch. Um, whether or not what they did was successful, that's that's uh, that's that's a different. Uh, that's hard to say. Um, when they attacked Algiers um, and bombarded it, it's 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 difficult. The, 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 the piracy didn't stop in Algeria until the French invaded it. And, and possessed it. Uh, and so the French and uh, the, the British for over, well, probably decades, centuries have been trying to stop it. But they never, they never took that one step to do what the French did, which was to attack, occupy, and then destroy the pirates and hunt them down. They never did that. They only ever sent uh, fleets They never actually did any kind of land campaign that the French did. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Battle of Algiers is quite intense, isn't it? With the fleet mm. firing 50,000 round shot, 118 yeah. tons of gunpowder, bomb vessels that fired 960 explosive mortar shells. How significant is the outcome of this battle? Well, it's like I said, is that they flattened the place completely. Yeah. Um, uh, they killed loads and loads of people. Um, but the thing was rebuilt. Uh, the city was rebuilt very quickly. The piracy was back up and running again. Um, not too long after that. And it was, like I said earlier, it was only when the French invaded and occupied it that the piracy completely stopped. So my feeling is that the Battle of Algiers paved way for the uh, weakened Algiers enough so that it paved the way for the French to invade it. That's, that's what I, I think. Um, I, I, although I didn't find in the research that I can recall that anything that says that, but um, I would suggest that that's probably that, that that had some kind of an outcome on the French decision to invade. So it, it'd be fair to say that the British didn't go quite the final step. No, um, they didn't. In, no, no, and they if didn't. they had, it would have. It's very much like what Britain does today. We don't. We'll go in and, you know, we'll do. We might send troops into a particular place. But we won't take that next step, which means going to war. Mm. So that's the one thing that, that we don't do. And that's the same thing back then. They, didn't, they did not declare war on Algiers. Had they done so, that would have meant a land campaign, and they didn't want to get involved in a land campaign. So they used the Royal Navy to bombard um, Algiers and I suppose the piracy level dropped for sure and then once the French invaded it was gone because they hunted down the pirates so who were could, would you be able to tell us who um, the reefy pirates were because they, they started to take on um, quite an interesting mantle on the coast of West Africa they were primarily Moroccan um, and from primarily from the coastal areas of Morocco um, and that was, there's that reef, um, which is what the coastal area of Morocco is called, or was called at the time. And that's where they came from, in the mountainous areas on the coastline, primarily from Morocco, but also further afield into um, uh, Tangiers, Tangeria, whatever, at that, at that particular point. But their primary focus was that the, the coast of Morocco. And they used... They had villages and, and they lived in the mountain. And the reason why it's so difficult to get to them is because they lived and operated in the mountains. So 
if you did a land campaign to get to them, um, it would be hugely costly in terms of material and in terms of, of personnel because they had they could hide in the in the caves and the cliffs and all that sort of stuff and they even hid their boats in inside caves that were at sea level or just above they would hide their boats in there so that you couldn't you could not really um, attack them and be successful in getting rid of them unless you you wanted to um, land troops and that's um, the Royal Navy didn't do that. They did try to um, try to almost in, uh, use diplomacy with them, but they found that they couldn't trust them. Yeah, they kept breaking their word. You know, they, they they broke their word. They were typical pirates, and they broke their word all the time. They uh, they were untrustworthy, and they just kept on uh, attacking shipping. So uh, in the in the long run, they and I mean the the. Royal Navy, this, they were trying to deal with these people for years. Uh, and it took a long time before that, that area ended, before that. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. They, they died out. Who are operating now, uh, from what I've heard. Um, In terms of how they operate, do they differ to Black Bart and pirates on the other side of the continent? Yeah, they did not use, they didn't get into fleets. Um, yeah. They didn't use massive um, ships with cannon on it. They didn't fight um, in the conventional way. They fought in smaller boats they, with, with, that were fast. Um, they would have a whole crew that would row these things really quickly. Uh, and they used um, small arms, like rifles, muskets, that sort of thing. And they would attack boats, um, and they would board them and then take what they wanted and leave. And it was all done at, um, very fast. I mean, it's very similar to the Somali pirates today uh, mm -hmm. that use small boats, uh, light weapons, boats that are fast, uh, and they can, they can get to their targets quickly, attack them, take what they want, and then leave. And that's, that's essentially how they did it. They did not use huge, massive, great ships like Black Bart did. Mm. And they operated in loose, kind of a loose formation of fleets, um, small boats, maybe one or two or three. They would operate, they would see their prey, and they would move them move their boats around as quickly as they could. Um, but they didn't have, they weren't like huge men of war. Which ultimately makes it a lot harder to, for the yeah. British to catch them. Yeah, much, much more, much harder. Um, but by the, by the mid 19th century, the, uh, the Royal Navy is starting to use uh, steam powered paddle ships as well as the usual um, traditional sail vessels. Did, they, did this have uh, an impact on pirate hunting at all? 
Well, it did because with the steamships came um, bigger guns, more not just cannon, but now they could they had bigger, bigger caliber guns. They had recoiling guns. They had uh, they could direct their fire uh, much better, and they weren't just sending cannonballs in. Now they had actual shells that, when they hit, would explode. Um, so it, yes, it did. It, they were able to, for example, take to Prometheus onto um, the reef coast where um, where there was a load of pirates, and they were able to blast for hours. They just blasted these guys, blew up house, blew up their huts, blew up boats. Actually, um, managed to get shells into some of the caves where they were hiding. Uh, so, you know, with that, with the advent of that kind of technology, it, it increased their chance, their success. In terms of how they take on pirates as well, by the mid 19th century, the Royal Navy are using steam powered paddle ships as well as more traditional vessels. What kind of impact do these have? Well, they were uh, the steamships were able to get there faster, they were able to. Uh, the paddle ships particularly were able to, didn't have a, 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 a draft, so they were able to get in close, fire, and then pull out. Um, uh, but of course, that was provided that the steam was working. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they had an effect, more, more so than sail. They, they were able to do more with steam than they, than they had been able to do with sail, and I think they were faster as well. So they could catch, they could get in quickly, fire, and then get out. They had to. But again, um, they didn't, uh, they didn't land troops. They didn't get into a land campaign because that would have meant declaring war on Morocco, which they didn't want to do. Yeah, so I suppose you need to get the sovereign states uh, approval to actually do anything about it. Um, the, they had the same problem with the Germans in, in Brazil in 1914. Uh, so the Navy are just trying to come up with a naval solution. Yeah. Well, they did have, they finally did manage to, through uh, diplomacy, through uh, military uh, means, they did manage to finally get the Pasha of Morocco to use his troops to take on um, the Rift Pirates. But it took, it took years for that to take place. And I think the, con the continuous success of the Royal Navy, um, especially with the steamships and that coming in and really being able to blast uh, the coastline um, and threats also from England, basically saying, well, if you don't do something about it, we'll, we'll ratchet it up a bit more. Maybe there was a threat of war behind it within the diplomacy. Um, but I think there was, a, there was a, a combination of new technology, diplomacy, um, and a threat of maybe sanctions, maybe the threat of war, you know, with Britain having uh, new, new technology in steam, and new guns, new caliber guns, that sort of stuff. I think that's what forced the... the, the Pasha or the Sultan to actually start attacking the pirates. And it was, that's what stopped, ultimately stopped 
the uh, the reef pirates is the um, that they were attacked internally by Moroccan forces. They are, um, you say they were defeated, but there are still issues with pirates and piracy along these coastlines and that. So what lessons do you think we can learn from pirate hunting across this period that can be applied against modern pirates in the region? Well, I think um, the one thing is you don't use a land campaign. Mm. Don't do it because it, you'll get involved in um, all sorts of problems and you'll get involved in the local culture. And I think the, the, I think the key lessons are um, find out what the cause is of the piracy. And if, it, if it's a failed state, then we either decide that we're going to go in and try and fix that state with the help, uh, but not like not go piling in like we do, but just mm. provide aid to that state, um, help to sustain them, help to ensure that their people have food, that, um, you know, and that the causes of piracy are taken away um, and making sure that people in the region have got, uh, you know, have got some form of livelihood, which doesn't mean, which, which doesn't affect the trade. Uh, I think there's, that's a key lesson. I think the other lesson would be that everybody has to do more in order to, to, uh, stop the trade but it, it all goes into what are the causes of piracy and when you understand what the causes of piracy are are they just criminals in many ways the piracy of people like black bart um they were criminals but if you've got people like the rift pirates who are operating from their own um their own territory like the somali pirates today um, they're operating from their own territory. They they're they're part of it's their own culture. Then there's you've got to look into that that the culture, the territory that they're operating from, and say why are they using why are they going after piracy? Are they just criminals? If they're just criminals, then you know you take them out. Um, but there's probably a lot more to it. Could they could be terrorists today? They might be terrorists, not just uh, not just pirates, but terrorists. So, you know, I think finding out what they want, finding out what the causes are, and then getting together with European nations uh, to try to fight it and to use diplomacy and to use, um, to go in and try and help them and support them, not take over, but just go in and try and support them is probably the way forward rather than an, uh, an increased um international naval presence yeah yeah i mean they, i think you got to keep the naval presence there because it's the threat and it's and it's uh the naval presence is there but i mean if they're being supported by another nation like iran who would be supporting them and other uh nations organizations that will be supporting them again you have to find out what the what those nations who they are and go and go to them and say look what are you doing why are you supporting these people and if you're supporting it just to piss us off then we're going to hammer you yeah you know 
that's I think that's so there's that that like all those different prongs, if you will, different avenues. You got to do diplomacy. You got to look at the causes. You got to see what you can do to, I guess, alleviate the suffering. Um, try and help them out. Um, give them supplies, and also try to get them if they can't grow their own food for whatever reason. Try and help them to to get arable land. To what to do with their arable land? How to irrigate it properly? If they've got drought, then find ways of getting you know maybe build a desalination plant or help them to build a, a desalination plant that gets water into their areas. Uh, there's all of that sort of thing. And then on top of that, if these guys are just, you do all of that and it still continues and they're still being, uh, behaving like terrorists, then you find out if someone's supporting them, uh, a belligerent country like Iran, if they're supporting them, then you, you, you gotta, you gotta go to the belligerent countries and say, look, you know, if you keep doing this, we're going to have to do something. Graham, thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of your book, Pirate Killers. Uh, it is available on the History Hack Bookshop. It's brilliant. Uh, well, it, what I saw of it before Chris stole it from me and <laughs> running for the hills back to Medway with it in his backpack was wonderful. Like a pirate. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen you move so fast, but you're loving it. Uh, and that yeah. is a ringing endorsement from someone who is uh, so discerning with his boaty content. So, Graham, thank you very much. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.